Hey, this is Nick DiMatteo from Music Is Not A Genre. I just wanted to take a minute to talk to you about the service I use to record and distribute my podcasts. If you haven't heard about Anchor, let me tell you from experience, it's the easiest way to make a podcast. Here's why. It's free. There are creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. Anchor will distribute your podcast for you so it can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and many more. You can make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. It's everything you need to make a podcast all in one place. So please take a moment out. If you are planning to create, record, and distribute podcasts, take a look at Anchor. Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. Hey, I'm Nick DiMatteo, and welcome to Music is Not a Genre, Music is Everything edition, number 22. Or if you're listening on the podcast platform, season three, episode 20, in Music is Everything. I take a musical idea, concept, theory, fact, opinion, I uh, untangle it, I discuss it at length, and then I connect it to things in the world at large. Uh, thank you to all of my Patreon patrons. It means a lot to me that you're helping to support so much. Uh, can't even describe how much you're helping to support. Uh, if you are listening to this on a podcast platform and you have not checked out my Patreon page, please do. There are a lot of exclusive videos and other content there, and I'd love for you to be a part of the family. Uh, this week, I'm going to get right to it. It is a topic that is near and dear to my heart. Uh, the title is, and as you know, if you if you haven't seen one of these in a while or heard one of these in a while, I read verbatim something I've written, which I don't do in my other um, versions of this podcast, and then I discuss it extemporaneously. Today's uh, topic is pop, a bad word, promoting the no-brow approach. What is pop music? Chances are whatever your head just said to you is wrong. Or if it's not wrong, it's absolutely not the whole story. One easy definition is that it's anything that's popular. Pops right there in the word, right? But that's too facile. Let's dig deeper. Where does pop or popular come from? The shared root of those words means people, like in populace or population. So pop music is music of the people, by the people, for the people. It's the people's music. Music made by people is pop music? Uh, that seems super broad and duh-inducing. Well, sit down because I'm going to tell you how it's even broader than you think. The definitions of pop music and popular music I found online bend over backwards to make all these distinctions and divisions. They are also wrong. They're wrong because they all start with the base assumption that there's a difference between quote-unquote, highbrow and lowbrow music. That classical jazz, avant-garde, world, and several other more esoteric forms are worthy of more status and study than rock, hip-hop, soul, country, folk, which, by the way, folk is just a synonym for people, so at heart means the same thing as pop. Not only is the assumption of difference wrong, the distinctions of highbrow and lowbrow themselves are equally meaningless. People listen to what they want to and like what they like. This has never been truer than now. 
because the internet gives most of us access to almost every piece of recorded music in history, which includes music created long before sound recording was a thing. Assuming one person listens to classical while another listens to hip-hop is, plain and simple, profiling. We all have tastes that go well beyond our assumed demographic. And by the truest definition, what people listen to is pop music. This has historically included music from every imaginable genre and sphere, regardless of its perceived status, popularity, or financial success. Music floats in and out of the zeitgeist and marketplace all the time, in the same way that the stock market's health has nothing to do with most people's day-to-day -day life. What songs sell or stream the most has nothing to do with the longitudinal identity of pop music. In fact, the only honest way to describe what pop music sounds like is everything. It sounds and has sounded and will sound like every kind of music that's ever existed, no matter what scholars claim. No other definition of pop music is useful or constructive. No division holds. There is no highbrow or lowbrow. All music is nobrow. Is it fun to research what the best-selling music was of different eras? Absolutely. I love hearing the changes and evolution. But these are cross-sections of a body of work that in no way tell the whole story. They're as representative of the body of pop as a person's clothing is to their existence, which is to say pretty much not at all. We're constantly making distinctions and divisions. Every day, usually unconsciously, we make multiple decisions about what things, ideas, and people are deserving of more status, respect, popularity, power. It's human nature to categorize, to create hierarchies. And it's the nature of most people in power to want to reinforce these distinctions to create more division to the point where we take on their way of seeing the world and start to subdivide ourselves. People who otherwise have 95% in common become enemies because of that 5% difference. It's important we see this power play, admit our very human part in it, and remain, re remain aware of it daily so that we can consciously redirect our judgments and open our thought processes to the notion that all of these distinctions are artificial. Just like how a dance song can be as sonically and theoretically worthy as a Mahler composition, or a hip-hop song can be as deep and meaningful as a Miles Davis work, people and ideas and organizations and objects and all art are not defined by class or race or mode of communication or look or how much money they cost. What people love is what matters. That's pop, and pop is us. I will hold for applause. No, I will not hold for applause, because this is a one-way street, sorry. Except for when you comment, because I love when you comment, and I hope you do. I hope I've roused some of you into talking about this. There are a lot of reasons why this, this topic keeps coming up for me. Um, first of all, I studied music in college. I got my Bachelor of Arts in music. And it was both, uh, it was theory, it was history, it was performance, it was the whole shebang. And in order to do that, I had to study the, you know, 
complete history of, of music as complete as possible, especially at the time. And I had to put some of it into practice. Uh, as a pianist, I played some classical compositions. I had to do recitals. I had to do a, uh, some uh, light opera singing as a vocalist. And I even composed a couple of, uh, you know, classical style pieces and things like that. But if you, uh, you know, have been following me at all, know me at all, you know that my uh, main area is, I'll say, pop music, which again could mean anything. And and to me, it does mean quite a lot of things. And if you've heard uh, any, uh, you know, great section of what I've done, you'll hear that it's not just one thing. Now... I grew up in a household with music, so I learned to respect music of all kinds. I learned to respect the history of music. I learned to, you know, give credit where credit is due and all of that. And more importantly, I think, to find the, the, the connections and commonalities between one kind of music and another. So because my way of playing and my way of interpreting music, uh, it's much easier for me to do that breaking things down into their chord changes than it is any other way that that's my strength it's it's uh, I'm stronger at that than sight reading etc etc when I listen to even a classical piece if I want to play it and play it note for note it helps me to break it down into its component chord structure you know if if that's the type of piece it is uh, you know some compositions don't have chord structures they're not tonal etc etc um but what that showed me was, well, here's a here's a direct connection between these kinds of music that generally most people might think have nothing to do with each other. So, you know, how does that how does that connect to the idea that pop music is everything, etc.? When I studied music history, I can't tell you how many times it was, you know, said in the books by the by the teacher, the professor, that so-and-so's composition was all the rage. That people would, you know, play it in the salons and, and they would dance to it or uh, small chamber, you know, chamber ensembles would play it at people's parties uh, or, you know, eventually when uh, sheet music, you know, became more widely disseminated, people and, and pianos became cheaper and, and keyboards became cheaper, people would buy them and play them themselves and all of this stuff and all of that we listen to his classical music and say, oh, well, that's classical music. That's not pop. Well, what did I just describe? I described music that was so popular that people wanted to hear it, to buy it, to own it, to, to replicate it. So for its time, there were, there were pieces of music that we now consider kind of dusty and, and, and classical were just as popular as anything that, you know, that we've heard. Uh, opera, you know, arias and things like that. It's, you know, that is that is a hundred percent the case there. So that's, you know, that's one thing to me. And the other thing is this, and this is hard for me to kind of to, uh, you know, get out without it sounding like I'm throwing shade. And I and I want to be uh, honest about it. And that I am, I will say, a little biased against bias, if that makes any sense. And here's what I mean. Because I studied the way I did, and because uh, I have kids who are, who are learning, and throughout my years I have, you know, had occasion to perform things that were not in the so-called pop realm, things like I have, and because my family is musical, I have encountered so many people 
who come from a kind of a different discipline, you know. And we often make these divisions, again, falsely. And the thing is, many of those people, that, that's what they would do. These are people who studied classically and who took pride in that and would be very clear to state that their way of learning, their way of performing was more proper than any other way. And sure, there were certain muscular things in the way you produce sound, especially as a vocalist, uh, that are just better for your body than others. But that can be used in any kind of music. So at, you know, fundamentally, there is no one right or better way to sing if, again, if you're not damaging your, your body. Whatever, whatever you comes out, how comes out, how you sing it, it'd be nice if you're on pitch. But even that sometimes is a is a question mark in a, in a good way. Certain kinds of music, and so I tend to bristle at the notion that if you don't have a certain tone of production or way of fingering on the piano and such and such, then you're not doing it right. And when you think of somebody like a, vir a virtuoso like Jimi Hendrix who played his guitar upside down, you know, or I can't tell you how many pianists I've seen who play by ear and you can blow away, you know, classically trained people or people who come up with their own fingering, whether it's for guitar or piano or people who do weird things with their voice in a productive way and more importantly, in an artistic way, in a way that's expressive and these go against training. Some of them may have been properly trained and said, screw it, in the same way that, say, you know, uh, Picasso was trained to be a kind of a classical painter and he said, screw it, you know. Um, but, and this is something that I remember even from an art class that I took in college, the, the professor claimed that it gave Picasso more credence that he was trained in that manner and had painted in that manner. And, and, you know, maybe at the time, uh, certain critics might have said that, but I completely disagree. I don't think you need to prove that you were great at some other discipline in your art and then go off and do something weird or different or do it your own way to, you know, to be good at what you do and to be respected at what you do. So that's, a, that's always been kind of a pet peeve of mine. Um, and, and, and by the same token, the other way, if there are, you know, uh, rock musicians or blues or jazz or whatever, who look, who, who look down their nose at other forms of music, you know, and, and make these false distinctions, like one thing isn't proper or one thing doesn't deserve the proper amount of study. It can't be, it can't be analyzed and broken down in the same way. Then I disagree with that too. It doesn't matter which side it comes from. It just so happens that having been brought up kind of with both sides, but gravitated heavily towards, you know, again, popular music, which I, I don't know how else to say it, even though I just kind of said that doesn't mean anything. Um, traditionally uh, classified popular music, let's say, I, I tend to look at the other side and, and, and say, you're fooling yourselves if you think you're more respectable than, than we are, than the, than the people who do the other kinds of music are. And one of the reasons, is a very personal reason, when my dad was a performer and a recording artist way back in his youth, he often had producers tell him that he sang too well. So his songs wouldn't uh, rise to the top of the charts the way some other singers would because they were more colloquial, et cetera, et cetera. And so 
there were kind of two things there. One was my first response was, well, I better be careful not to sing too well. You know, if you're too mannered, if you're too polite in the way you sing, certain kinds of music will, will fail. They won't work that well. And you can't be as expressive if you're spending all of your time trying to be perfect. You have to do your work and then let it go, you know. But then my, my counter response to that as I got older was, why didn't they just let him sing the way he sang the best? If that's where his passion was and his expression was, then it would have worked even better if they just let him do that. Now, that said, he learned to sing in so many other different styles that in the end it didn't really matter. But the point being, it was ingrained in me early that there are always going to be people out there who are making distinctions between one kind of music and another, one kind of singing and another. And you know the whole thing, music is not a genre, is that that's just bull. Um, and... You know, in fact, recently I had a discussion with a guy and so you could see how this cuts because not only are there elitists on the, let's quote unquote, more learned side of music, you know, there are elitists everywhere. There are, there are elitists within, say, the rock world. And a perfect example, I know somebody who happens to be a huge fan of The Clash because they're punk, because they're revolutionary, because they're political, et cetera, et cetera. And I've... I get that. I just recently listened to their entire catalog. I, you know, I love it. I understand that. But what I also heard in The Clash, which is one of the things that made them sustainable and popular and so influential, was that they, they also understood what a pop song was. You know, how to craft a song that had hooks, that was concise, that got to the point and still allowed room for expression and development and things like that. So I had mentioned to the guy about the song uh, Train in Vain, which if you, don't look, if you don't know it, look it up and compare it to, let's say, London Calling or something like that. And I said, oh, I used to play that a lot in the coffee houses. I love it, etc." And that, it, that was a song that showed me that the, the band that came after The Clash, uh, Big Audio Dynamite with Mick Jones, you could hear strains of what they would eventually do within some of what The Clash did. And uh, Train in Vain was an example. And this guy said that he thought that the record company told them, write a hit single, write a pop song. And that to me immediately just smells of elitism. And that type of elitism is, well, you're not rough and raw and just, you know, uh, throwing everything out the window. But anybody who knows any musicians know, or most musicians there are, there are way more facets to what a person listens to and things that they've written than you'll ever actually get to hear. Fortunately for some artists, they were bold enough to put it on wax. And The Clash did that after their first couple of albums. They went everywhere. Now, I did a podcast on this. Please look it up. It's, a, it's my Big Audio Dynamite podcast, so you can get more detail on that. But I'm using that as an example to say, again, a false distinction. A song like Train in Vain does not make, um, you know, the, the Clash any less, uh, you know, respect, respected, respectable or, um, you know, um, the, word is, the word is escaping me than if they hadn't done it. I think it, it, actually, it actually makes them better to me because it shows that they weren't, and they even said this back then, they weren't hemmed in by the punk aesthetic. You know, uh, it, it really does connect oddly with, with that podcast in a lot of ways. Um, 
you know, and, and I've also done other podcasts about uh, about a point that I made here, which is how the industry has force fed us these divisions, and and it's the same way in which people in power force feed us divisions amongst ourselves, because. You know, if we keep fighting, we'll never learn that it's really them we should be looking at, you know. And if, you know, if the industry keeps subdividing music, then we'll never learn that maybe we can take control of the music situation and, you know, release it ourselves. And that is actually happening. So that's that's kind of a good thing. Um, so that was another point. I'm looking at my notes. What's funny about the... Uh, definitions that I saw, it was so weird. It was so weird because here's what I think. I think, okay, pop music. It's just short for popular music, right? And I'm not saying Wikipedia is the, you know, be all and end all of sources, but it's way better than it used to be and it's constantly correcting itself and it has some very good information there. And I did, I looked it up on other on other websites too and there seems to be a consensus that you that pop music is different from popular music. That pop music is whatever, it, and this you're going to hear the refutation right in what I'm saying. Pop music is whatever's popular at a certain time. So, the top of the charts. Popular music encompasses all kinds of non-classical jazz, etc. Music. The, what I mentioned, kind of in the what I read in one of my first paragraphs. Well, that's, I get that because I've heard it before. And again, people need, you know, tags and labels and things like that to talk about stuff for, in, in shorthand so that we kind of get an understanding. But what we end up losing, what we lose with shorthand, what we lose with tags and labels, names and classifications is the same thing we lose with uh, memes and headlines and um, catchphrases and buzzwords, which is they get repeated so often that we assume that they're that they're the full definition of that thing, and there's nothing behind it. Or they're so easy to remember, and they catch your you know catch your eye or ear so easily that we think that's the entire story, and there's no reason to dig deeper. So you can say pop is different from popular music, you know, and all of that, but it's damaging. Because it, it, it makes people stop thinking at that point. They say, yeah, of course, I get it. But look beyond that and realize that the more you try to define what the difference between pop and popular music is, the, the murkier it gets to the point where you're really not seeing a difference anymore. And that was really the entire point of this podcast, was to kind of go over that. It was to go over the fact that not only... Um, does that, you know, manifest itself in music, but in the rest of the world, and it's connected to elitism of many kinds, but most specifically, classism and racism. And that applies not just to the rest of the world, as we know it does, but to music. You know, there are people, when jazz came out, it was a novelty. It was you know, race music, one kind of race music. It was, it was, it was not considered very serious. And then it became kind of a trend and, and a hot thing that a lot of people took on. And, and it was the popular music of the 19, like 30s and 40s. 
And then it kind of got more esoteric, more complex. People experimented more. And it eventually migrated over to the chambers, let's say, and became an area of study to the point now where when you go to Juilliard, you know, or many other, I'm not, I don't know the complete distinctions of Juilliard, but other, you know, schools like that, you can choose to study jazz, you can choose to study classical. They're kind of put on a par with each other. That's not how it started. There are types of classical music that didn't start as, start out as being well-respected. But they got there. And now we have institutions that do study certain kinds of rock music. And even, thankfully, certain kinds of hip-hop music. Maybe the history of hip-hop, things like that. There are professors out there teaching this, which I think is so important. Because it starts to wear away at those false distinctions that come from classism and racism. And you find in history how many times something was classified as unserious whether it was a person or a type of art in this case music that type of music was considered unserious because of where it came from because of who was doing it and yeah because sonically and and in terms of the way it was produced and played it was different from what came before so that was jarring in many ways and it takes some getting used to but that's not the whole story that the, the if that were the whole story then it would have been respected much more quickly and, and whatever whichever kind of music i'm talking about so that's you know the, that is how you can see that classism and racism play a big part in making these false distinctions between so-called pop music and every other kind of music uh, just the same way when I did my world music podcast, they said, well, what does world music mean? We live in the world, so every kind of music is world music. We only call world music world music because it's foreign to us, which is itself an ism. You know, it's a division. It's a distinction that really doesn't mean anything the more you dig at it. Fortunately, many, 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 many artists are crying out for changing music labels and they are crossing genres and throwing things in their music that make it new and different, which happens all the time, but there, there's more, it's more vocal right now. It, there's, it's more deliberate in terms of how it's being shouted to the world, not, not just how it's being uh, created and produced. That's happened since forever. But how it's being brought out into the world, it's more deliberate. It's, it's openly saying that's what it's doing. Uh, the industry, in some small ways, is starting to follow suit, which is very nice. It's doing away with certain labels and et cetera. It's got a long way to go as institutions always do. Any, but any progress is good, you know? And that's what I'm hoping to get at here, which is uh, if you understand and or believe or agree with anything that I've said here and already did with or without my help, you know, then that's progress. That's, and that's something that we should keep talking about and keep spreading. Uh, because that's how change happens. And uh, that's my story. I'd love to know what you think of all this. Do you have a certain idea, as I said in the beginning, of what pop music is? When you hear pop music, do you hear, um, you know, Britney Spears or, or uh, Michael Jackson or Billy Joel or the Beatles, you know, or Frank Sinatra or Elvis, whatever your era is or whatever type of pop music you like? Does your brain just do that naturally? I'd like to know that because I think everyone's brain does. 
And it's what I said towards the end, you know, we need to be, all we need to do is be aware of it so that we can kind of untrigger that and maybe say, oh, well, maybe that's not the whole story. And I'd like to know what part of your story is. Tell me everything you want to tell me, whether you agree or disagree with what I just said, because as always, my objectives here are music, conversation, and connection. Thank you, and I'll see you next time. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.